Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. We're in the midst of a series on the book of Exodus at our church. I've loved living with these stories, and many of you have told me you've been reading along with the stories at home, preparing for Sundays as part of Lent. And I wonder if you struggled as much with this story as I have. Let's struggle with it together, shall we? The golden calf is Israel's worst catastrophe. At the moment of God's giving of the law, the people are breaking all ten of the commandments. This is like someone cheating with their new spouse on their wedding night. If we Christians see the worst sin in Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve, our Jewish older siblings see the worst sin here with the golden calf. Nothing worse has ever happened. Here's why it's such a catastrophe. The point of God's calling of Israel is to make a priestly people. And we don't use the word priest much in most Protestant churches, so let me explain. A priest goes to God on behalf of the people and brings the people's prayers and offerings. And then a priest goes to the people on behalf of God and brings wisdom and blessing and hope. A priest conducts traffic between heaven and earth. Israel is that priest for the world. God doesn't choose Israel for Israel's sake. God chooses Israel so as to bless all the world through Israel, for everybody else's sake. But here's the problem. What happens when Israel, God's priestly people, fails? What happens to the traffic between heaven and earth? One scholar says this is like a giant worldwide fire, and the fire crew races off to put out the fire, but the fire truck gets stuck in a ditch. The redeeming people need redemption. And meanwhile, the world is still burning. Israel's fall is not just embarrassing for Israel. It's a disaster for the whole world that's on fire. If God's priestly people fall into idolatry, the rest of us are beyond lost. This story about God's priestly people shows the best reason to come to church. We don't come to church for a spiritual pick-me-up. That can happen, often doesn't. We come to church to pray for everybody else who isn't here, to drag people before God and demand that God bless them and heal them. And, my fellow priests, we see two different portraits of priests in this story, two different ways to fail. One, Aaron. The people say Moses has been gone a long while. Who knows if Moses is ever coming back? Make gods for us. That's the definition of idolatry, making a god that you like. And Aaron does. No argument, no effort to dissuade them takes their gold, melts it down, makes two calves, the symbol of Israel's enemies' gods, 
And they acclaim, here are your gods, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. And Aaron builds an altar and announces a festival for this abominable metal cow. See, Israel wants a God it can control. We can understand this because we do too. If Aaron wanders off to be with God on the top of the mountain, the golden calf will not be wandering off. It's visible. You can move it around, but it can't move itself. In Exodus, God constructs elaborate means to be with the people and also invisible. Fifteen chapters of Exodus are about building the tabernacle, its decoration, its beauty, its festivals, its observances, its veils. God is with the people, but also unseen. Now, by contrast, when the people rebel, it's a rush job, done without tenderness or care, overnight. See, idols are not usually the opposite of God. Idols are usually good things, gifts, that we're then tempted to worship, which we should not do. Satan is not so obvious as to dress for us in red and hold that pitchfork and have horns. No, evil is stealthy. It dresses up as good. A friend of mine in college noticed that his roommate went out on dates all the time. My friend went out on dates none of the time. And so he consulted the expert in the room with him. And his roommate says, "Um, it's easy. All I do is tell them whatever they want to hear. That's how evil works. It preys on our vulnerabilities, worms its way in through our weaknesses, and then manipulates. Now, most sermons would stop here and denounce idolatry. And that's easy, because we have a world awash with idols. They are everywhere. I said to you last week, most of us are not tempted to worship Baal or Molech with a human sacrifice, but we might be tempted to worship Nike or Apple or the good life that they tell us we should all want. It used to be that churches like this were the tallest buildings in this city, steeples reaching up to the heavens. But very quickly, we were overtaken by buildings for commerce and banking, reaching to the same heavens, hundreds of stories higher. But then those businesses have been eclipsed by condos, some of the most expensive housing in the history of the world, looking down on the banks that lend them the money. Our age idolizes celebrity. People are famous for being famous. Superficial, physical beauty and internet personalities. Now, nobody centrally plans all these idols. They just accumulate. They clutter up over the centuries. And it's not just wealthy countries like us that have idols. A friend of mine did refugee work in northern Uganda. Everyone had a little shack, but then some of the shacks rose a story higher. Churches. (laughs) With their little modest steeples reaching up. But then other buildings also rose higher, liquor stills (laughs) to make that stuff. And then other buildings also rose a story higher, radio towers to communicate, to have commerce. It's the same things we do because every human being needs to pray and every human being needs to rest and relax and also communicate and sell stuff and buy stuff. Idols are good things 
that we mistakenly put in place of God. But it's really, really hard to tell when we've done that. Now, the clear villain in this passage is Aaron, brother of Moses, first priest, forebearer of every subsequent priest in Israel. Aaron gives the people the idols they want. And when Moses challenges him later, hey man, what what was that about? Aaron says, you know these people, they're wicked. I just took their gold, threw it in the fire, and out jumped this calf. Total abdication of leadership. And Aaron ends up unpunished in this story. When Eve sins in Genesis 3, we lambaste her and all women forever. Aaron just shows up in the next chapter, unpunished. Hi, Aaron. Worst idolater ever. There you are. Giving people the gods they want and then disclaiming responsibility is pathetic. Passive-aggressive failure. But Moses is not much better. He starts out better because God wants to destroy the people and start over with Moses. And Moses won't let it happen. You know how these infants that we've just baptized will wrestle with their parents and you parents will let them win? That's what God does with Moses. God lets Moses win. God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn against them and I will make of you a great nation. Moses won't. God says to Moses, Israel is your people whom you led out of Egypt. But Moses says, no, 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 God, let's get the pronouns right. Israel is your people who you led out of Egypt. God is trying to wash his hands of this people, say there, Moses is not his. Moses corrects God. No, 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 God, they are yours. Moses argues, you don't want the Egyptians to say, you led them out in the wilderness to murder them. Do you, God? I mean, you care about your reputation, God. You're vain. And remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You love those guys. And God says, you're right. I do care about my reputation. I do remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fine. I won't kill them. Moses does not let God give up on the people. That's prayer. That's being a priest. That's demanding goodness from God when God might prefer to punish. That's leadership. And it's brilliant. And then, Moses fails worse than Aaron ever did. For most of us human beings, our strengths and our flaws are very close to one another. They're usually two sides of the same coin. That's true of institutions also, and of nations as well. Aaron gives the people what they want. That's good in some lines of work. Aaron would have been great in retail or in sales until he gives them the idols they want. That's like a pharmacist agreeing to give someone the poison that they ask for. Moses browbeats God into sticking by Israel when Israel cheats with God on their wedding night. That's good. Until Moses sees with his own eyes what Israel has done, and Moses loses his mind. Moses destroys the two tablets with the commands on them. God didn't tell him to do that. Moses just did. Moses melts down the golden calves, puts the dust in water, and makes the people drink it. That is, he turns the idols into human waste. 
which is all idols are anyway. Moses demands from the people to know what side they're on. Are you with the Lord or with the golden calves? The people choose the golden calves, and Moses has the Levites kill 3,000 of them. Those are in the verses that we skipped. Always look in the verses the preacher skipped. That's usually the rated R stuff right in there. This is religious fanaticism. God doesn't order it. Moses just does it. He's cleansing the contagion from Israel, treating idolatry like we treat a biological pathogen or an infestation in our house. Get rid of it. No tolerance. Kill them all. These are two different bad ways to be a priest. Aaron goes along to get along. Whatever, man, you can have any old idol you want. Moses shows zeal, rectitude for the truth. Too much of both. I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. Kill those who disagree. So Aaron is the know-nothing liberal who agrees with everyone. It's all good. Who cares? Moses is the fanatic who will have purity no matter who is injured in the process. The Lord demands it. No compromise. Like churches in the Middle Ages or in the Inquisition or in the conquest of the Americas. They both fail and our world is still on fire. You may have heard the church is in trouble in North America. I got a book this week about the church in Canada called God doesn't live here anymore. Now, in the early 20th century, Canadians were more church-going than my fellow United States people. That sounded like a terrible way to put it. My fellow people from the United States. <laughs> but now, Canadians are much less, and America is declining as well. Churches have responded to this by trying to build back up customers, be more entertaining and cool, Try skinny jeans and tight shirts. Don't worry, we're not going to try this here. It wouldn't work. We wouldn't be fooling anybody. But in some places, that has worked. Some churches have grown by being cooler. But most of those new people have come from smaller churches, which then decline faster and eventually close. And lots of gigachurches collapse in spectacular fashion, including in this city. Bad priests, again. And some think, who cares? Christianity had a good run, 1,000 or 1,500 years, however you date it. Canada can do without it. And didn't churches do a lot of harm anyway? And that misses the point. The church, like Israel before us, doesn't exist for our sake. We exist for everybody else's sake. Everyone who's not here this morning. Our job is to pray for and bless the world. The loss of the church means the loss of God's own presence. It's a catastrophe. And the way back isn't to entertain people back in. That only works for a moment and then it can do real harm. The goal isn't to pretend everything's fine. It's not. The world is still on fire and people know it. Here's the goal. It's to join in with God as God heals creation. That's what the church is for. To join in with God as God heals creation. We are God's hands and feet 
God's tool and trowel. We're God's medicine and bandages. We're the means by which God is making all things new. Now, if I were God, I might have chosen some better way to save the world than the church. But God seems to have lower standards than most of us. God is making all things new. Not some of the things, not most of the things, but all things new. And if we are gone, it's like God's gone. Do you see the problem? And do you see why we're struggling? It's our own dang fault. We're like Aaron, blasé and self-concerned, blaming others, shrugging while the world burns. Or we're like Moses, 100% confident, cocksure, arrogant, handing out life and death and judgment. Aaron is a lot like liberal churches or churches in general in our age. Ah, who cares? Who can know the truth anyway? Moses is like conservative ones. We're right. Everybody else is wrong. Oh, disagree? Here, meet my sword. God's people are in revolt. God's priests are failing. One this way, one that way, and God's world is still on fire. This is far worse than former church buildings becoming condos or nightclubs. This is death for creation. But there's one more character in this story, one who has a different response to our dreadful spiritual state. This one is not like Aaron. This one doesn't just give us what we want. Some 30 years ago now, Garth Brooks sang, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. There's wisdom in that. Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings fantasizes what he would do if he had the ring of power. How would he spend all the power there is? Sam likes gardens. He thinks, I would make more gardens. But then he realizes, I would choke the earth with gardens. Too much of a good thing that comes from too much power. Most of us want Aaron's God. We want Santa Claus, where every day is Christmas, and we've always been good, and we get exactly what we want when we want it. Aaron shows what happens with that kind of God. Golden calves, idols everywhere. You can see Aaron's God in Toronto's hipster neighborhoods. Two and three pot shops on every block, just as many tattoo places, just as many hair places, just as many bougie food places that no one can afford, except we've all got too much credit and we've all used it up. That's Aaron's God in our city. The other character's not like Moses either. He has Moses' zeal and passion for the truth, but he doesn't break things, and he doesn't break people to get the truth. Moses rushes around saving the world, killing anyone who disagrees with him, which happens to be most people, saving very little, making clear who's right and who's wrong, who's saved and who's not. If you've ever been a fundamentalist, and most of us have been a fundamentalist about something at some point in our lives, you can recognize Moses. To cite a movie you've never heard of if you're older than Gen X, but that you have memorized if you're Gen X or younger, Moses' God is Walter from The Big Lebowski. Am I the only one who cares about the rules anymore? 
Has the whole world gone crazy? Moses is the Trump phenomenon with its pale imitators in this country. Just raise your voice, bang the table, drown out the sinners, and the world will snap back to the 1950s when the men were men and the women were women and everyone knew their place. Oh, and we white guys, we were in charge. The other character in this story is God. God who creates the world in love. And then when the world descends into chaos, God is tempted to wash his hands, but God lets Moses talk him out of doing it. God is willing to let us change God's mind. It's right there in the Bible. Verse 14, God changed his mind in response to Aaron. God will change his mind, but not his character. God cannot change his character. God cannot be anything other than good. So God is tempted to wipe us out, to start over. You will agree we human beings deserve that at times. But God won't do it. He lets Moses talk him off the ledge. When Moses offers to let himself be blotted out of the book of life, God says, no, I'm not killing someone who did no wrong. And then this makes me nuts, y'all. God doesn't punish either Aaron or Moses for being such bad priests. God says, okay, here we all are, all different sorts of idolaters, Aaron in his way, Moses in his, worshiping things we made. That's death. That's a world on fire, unredeemed. God asks, what will I do? God says, well, I could start over with other better people this time, but no, I tried that with Noah. And 10 minutes after the flood, Noah is drunk and naked and cursing his own children. There are no better people. All there are is flawed people. So that's not the offer. Here's what I'll do. I'll stick with these compromised people, for better or worse, for richer or poor, precisely when they don't deserve it. And I'll work from within to make them holy, to get the fire truck out of the ditch and on its way to repairing the world, putting out the fire, making all things new. And I'll even do it with flawed Moses, zealous enough to kill willy-nilly to show who's right. I'll even do it with flawed Aaron, Live and let live. Whatever, man. Knock yourself out, not noticing the destruction that results. I'll even do it with my compromised church in Canada, my overly zealous church in sometimes in places, my liberals and my conservatives. Both being liberal and being conservative can be great ways to hide from God. God says, these compromised people they're the only ones I have. I will save the world through a people this unpromising. You watch. And so we pray. Get this fire truck out of the ditch, Lord. Your world is on fire. Heal us and everyone else. Make all things new. God of Moses and Aaron and Jesus and all the rest of us. Amen.